You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome back, friends. Welcome back to the Corbett Report podcast. I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan, here on the fourth day of December 2020. You're tuned into episode 390 of the Corbett Report podcast, Breddenwoods 2.0. Now, it should be a fairly non-controversial observation that when the managing director of the International Monetary Fund uses the current crisis and the resulting economic, social, and political upheaval to take to the global virtual pulpit that has been afforded to her and invoke the memory of Bretton Woods, the historically literate amongst us realize that we in the general public are being prepared for a world historical transition. Reflecting on the dramatic change in the world over the last year, I paid a visit to Bretton Woods in New Hampshire, where 44 men signed our Articles of Agreement in 1944. Our founders faced two massive tasks to deal with the immediate devastation caused by the war and to lay the foundation for a more peaceful, more prosperous post-war world. At the conclusion of the conference, John Maynard Keynes captured the significance of international cooperation as hope for the world. If we can continue, the brotherhood of men will have become more than a phrase he said. We face what I have called a long ascent for the global economy, a climb that will be difficult, uneven, uncertain, and prone to setbacks. But it is a climb up, and we will have a chance to address some persistent problems, low productivity, slow growth, high inequalities, a looming climate crisis. We can do better than build back the pre-pandemic world. We can build forward to a world that is more resilient, sustainable, and inclusive. We must seize this new Bretton Woods moment. A new Bretton Woods moment. Well, if those words spoken by the managing director of the International Monetary Fund at this particular moment of crisis do not pique your interest, if not actively send shivers down your spine, then don't worry, you're probably not alone, because unfortunately, much to the public's detriment, we have had occluded from our attention the important facts that make up the material basis of our existence and the living, breathing history that affects us to this very day. So it is time to start filling in those gaps in our knowledge about such things as the Bretton Woods Conference. And although I won't go so far as to say that Bretton Woods was the defining or most important moment of the 20th century, it certainly was a focal moment in time in which threads that were being woven throughout the beginning part of the 20th century were starting to converge and come together and weave a tapestry that affects us and that we live with to this very day in some important respects. So we could fill in our gaps in our knowledge by turning to that bastion of truthiness Wikipedia where we could learn the dry and dusty details of names, dates, and figures that make the stuff of the mainstream history textbooks that generally tend to make people's eyes glaze over and convince them that history itself is a drab and lifeless affair. Uh, and we could learn, for example, that the Bretton Woods Conference was held in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire in July of 1944 and brought together 730 delegates from all 44 allied nations to create the IMF and the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, which became part of the World Bank, and it created a system where countries would peg their currencies to the U.S. dollar, which itself was convertible to gold at $35 an ounce, blah, blah, blah. I've probably already lost your attention, so let's not do that. Let's paint the context of what it looked like there in July of 1944, literally three weeks after D-Day, 
and after the definitive turning of the tide of the Second World War, and the Allies essentially converged on Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, sleepy mountain town, to essentially carve up the world and decide on the new monetary order that they understood would dictate the course of world trade, at the very least, for decades, if not generations to come. And it was a particularly interesting time, I suppose, to be a technocrat with dreams of uh, creating central planning and control over vast swaths of the human population. So one can imagine the types of figures who descended on Bretton Woods and the key figures who actually ended up really pen penning and forging that agreement, more on which later. But again, let's, let's think of the context of what was happening there in 1944, where you have these people meeting in the ashes, essentially, of World War II, the incredible carnage and destruction that had been wrought across not just Europe, but large portions of the globe, and countries in ruins, countries in crippling war debt that they were not likely to escape anytime soon, coming to Bretton Woods, essentially, to learn how the world was going to be governed by the United States, going from there on out. There was no delusions amongst any of the attendees about that, and about the, the pecking order that had emerged in the wake of World War II. Um, and it's not just the ashes of World War II that these people were living in and constructing this, what they hoped would be a phoenix to rise from those ashes. It was the ashes of the world economy generally that had been tattered by decades of violent upheaval and turmoil. Emphasis on the word violent, starting, I mean, you could go back to World War I itself and paint the picture that way and look at not only the incredible crippling war debts and reparations that had been wrought throughout World War I that led to the, for example, the turmoil in Germany, the rise and fall of the Weimar Republic, the hyperinflationary events leading to National Socialism and, and all of those pieces of that puzzle. But of course, then also you look at the context in the United States and elsewhere, the, the Great crash of 1929, the Great Depression, you have tariffs and trade barriers being erected, you have the, the disintegration of the gold standard, which had been the basis for world trade in the 19th and early 20th century. So much of the world was in tatters that in 1944, one could imagine finding sucker in the words world order. And it was very much a new world order that was being constructed at that Bretton Woods conference. So I think that an incredibly instructive way to view history is through a lens that almost no historians use, which is the monetary lens, to understand history through monetary history. And when you do so, you start to see connections between events that otherwise seem disparate, disconnected, chaotic, random. Suddenly, dots start to line up, start to connect, and you start to see how there is a thread that runs through various events. And I think my audience will be particularly well situated to put that monetary uh, history lens through uh, to, to look at the history of the early 20th century that led up to the Bread and Wiz Conference. For example, you can take the history of the Federal Reserve that I outlined in Century of Enslavement, corbettreport.com slash Federal Reserve, and you can understand that the signing of the Federal Reserve Act in late 1913, the, really the formal launching of the Fed in 1914, was materially related to the fact that the United States found itself embroiled in a global war, and in fact being one of the engines, the financial engines, underwriting that war by 1917, uh, that led from the U.S. becoming uh, going from a, a, a debtor nation into a creditor nation and ultimately into the world's largest creditor nation, which was the position that it was in, uh, certainly at the Bretton Woods Conference in 1944. Uh, you can look at, for example, of course, the types of interests that in the United States political context had engineered that Federal Reserve into existence through an admitted and uh, now acknowledged conspiracy that started in Jekyll Island in 1910 and led through people like Bernard Baruch, who led Woodrow Wilson, quote-unquote, like a poodle on a string to Democratic Party headquarters in New York City in 1912 to uh, take his marching orders for the 1912 selection, in which he was selected to be President of the United States, and served that role well by signing the Federal Reserve Act into existence and then ultimately embroiling the United States in World War I, despite his 1916 campaign promise to not do that. He 
took his marching orders quite well and affected the goal of the banking interests to make sure that the global war uh, had its uh, skids greased by the never-ending flow of credit that was possible with the creation of the Federal Reserve, the, the greasing of the skids that way through the, 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 monetary, the monetary paradigm, the creation of the Federal Reserve note that most people think of as the US dollar at this point. Although, of course, that is not necessarily the case. But anyway, that was literally only created in 1914. Uh, you have, uh, again, you can go through the, the history of the 1920s and the 1930s, the trade wars, the tariffs, the uh, the, the the upsetting of the, the gold standard, which modern economists call a failure of the gold standard, because clearly the World War I was a test of the international trade system at that time, and the world trade system failed because these countries had to take themselves off the gold standard in order to finance their war efforts. So the fact that they had to abandon the gold standard in order to finance the, the most incredibly large carnage that had ever been wrought to, in the entire world to that point might give one pause for thought about whether that's a failure of the gold standard or something that speaks to its benefit. But anyway, uh, whatever the case may be, uh, these are the types of concerns and and factors that went into that conference in 1944 and did result in ultimately the creation of a new system of international trade and finance and ultimately a new monetary order that served to be the bedrock of a new world order that was coming into view in that time period towards the end of World War II and then going on from there into the creation of the United Nations, etc. Uh, and New World Order is a phrase that is constantly used for those who read about the history of this period, that these people were self-consciously uh, creating a New World Order. And they did so um, through such things as the signing of the Bretton Woods Agreement. We'll get more into the specifics of that agreement in the course of this episode, but let's let's start by recontextualizing this and putting this back into the context of today. So we saw the incredible carnage uh, that had been wrought upon the world in the lead up to Bretton Woods that necessitated this type of international agreement that would set in the world on a new course. And now here we are after having suffered this incredible life-changing pandemic, this plague that has killed hundreds of millions, millions of hundreds of thousands, a few people. Really, it's killed some people. And we are now restructuring the way we live our lives and everything that we have taken for granted about the way the world works is now all coming into question. And now we're going to go on a completely new monetary course with a different global currency and what? What's happening now? Why bread and woods? What exactly is happening? Well, let's take a look at some of the incredible new technologies that are coming into view that offer the would-be technocrats and the would-be crafters of the new New World Order and the new New Great Reset a chance to completely change the monetary paradigm as we've known it. We are at a historic turning point. You, young or not so young, doesn't matter, but bold entrepreneurs gathered here today, you are not just inventing new services, you are reinventing the history of money. You're drawing a completely new future, actually. And we are all in the process of adapting. A new wind is blowing, and it is that of digitalization. And in this new world, we meet anywhere any time, as they said. And surprise, surprise, the town square is back. Back on your smartphone. We exchange information, services, even emojis, instantly, peer-to-peer, person-to-person. We float through a world of information where data is the new gold, despite growing concerns about privacy, about cyber attacks. A world in which millennials are reinventing how our economy works, phone in hand. And this is key. Money itself is changing. We expect it to become more convenient, more user-friendly, perhaps even less serious-looking. 
We expect it to be integrated with social media, readily available for online and person-to-person -person use, including micropayments. And of course, we ex expect it to be cheap, safe, protected against criminals and prying eyes. So, what role will remain for cash in this digital world? There are already signs in some shop windows. Cash not accepted. And it's not just in Scandinavia, the poster child of a cashless world. In various other countries too, demand for cash is decreasing, as is shown in our IMF work. And in 10, 20, 30 years' time, who will still be exchanging those pieces of paper called checks? Yes, for those of you keeping track at home, that is previous IMF Managing Director, current President of the ECB, the European Central Bank, and, lest we forget, convicted criminal... Yes, convicted criminal, Christine Lagarde. If you are unfamiliar with that story, I will provide a link in the show notes to fill you in on those details at corporatereport.com slash Woods 2 uh, Please check into it. But yes, that is Christine Lagarde talking about how the transformation of fintech, financial technology, will be affected by this digital revolution and how it is changing the nature of money itself, or at least what the central bankers of the world call money, which may be a different thing altogether, but it is certainly going to impact each and every one of us as the central banks around the world are now busy, busily, and determinedly looking into and starting their plans for bringing into existence central bank digital currencies. Write that term down. It's going to become more and more a part of the everyday parlance of the bankers and their mockingbird repeaters in the mainstream corporate press. Central bank digital currency, CBDC, is certainly a word to keep your eyes on, or a phrase to keep your eyes on, because it is going to be invoked more and more in the coming years. So the first question that I'm sure everyone will have when encountering that term is, what is a central bank digital currency? And right off the bat, as you can tell from the name, there are two key features that we know that are implicit in the concept of CBDC. One is that it is central bank issued or controlled in some key sense. And the second is that it's digital. So we know that much, at least, about whatever uh, gets passed off as CBDC. And there will presumably be many different forms of CBDCs in many different countries because they will all be implemented in slightly different ways. But anyway, those core features obviously need to be core features in order for it to count as a CBDC. But other than that, it's details schmetails. I mean, we'll work that out. And don't worry, the bankers are, as I say, busily working on that behind the scenes uh, in the white papers that, of course, are, again, openly available. It's the open conspiracy. There's nothing taking place in shadowy rooms here. They're openly talking about it. They're just issuing boring white papers that one in one million people will actually bother to read. So most people are uninformed about this subject. But uh, of course, when they present this to the world in public-facing speeches like that one by Lagarde and others, they'll always use the trendy buzzwords and the, the feel-good platitudes about moving at the speed of finance and uh, uh, decentralized blockchain ledgers, and they'll talk about inclusion and equality and all of these feel-good words. Um, but what form these CBDCs actually end up taking is very much up for grabs, or at least is up for the decision of the technocrats who seek are seeking right now, in fact, are carving out a new monetary order right under our noses. Um, so if you want to see the development of this idea over the last few years, I have been following it at the Corbett Report. For example, you can go back to 2017, where I wrote a report on China prepping digital yuan, talking about the early stages of what is now uh, understood and has been rolled out as the DCEP, um, which is a functioning central bank digital currency that is up and running today, although it is not obviously completely widespread yet, but China is already playing around with this, which is another reason that the central bankers around the world say, well, look, China's already acting on this and we don't want to fall too far behind because that'll make China even more powerful. So it's 
like everything else, using the political boogeyman to say, well, now we have to do it. They're developing bioweapons? Well, now we have to develop bioweapons so that we can learn how to protect ourselves from bioweapons, etc. You know how that goes. Um, so from that China Prepping Digital Yuan report, you can saunter on over to 2019, where I wrote about who's afraid of decentralized currency, talking a little bit more about the Bitcoin PSYOP and how central bankers are rush rushing to embrace these decentralized blockchain ledger-based cryptocurrencies, uh, Bitcoin, Fedcoin, whatever. What's the difference? It's all the same. Buzzword, buzzword, buzzword. Uh, and I did go through and break down a little bit more about that. And I pointed at that time to a BIS, Bank for International Settlement white paper from 2017 called Central Bank Cryptocurrencies, where they created a taxonomy of uh, nomenclature for looking at different types of digital currencies and how they can be separated and divided up. And they come up with this extremely confusing Venn diagram in there. Uh, another thing that I pointed to in my Bitcoin PSYOP episode of this podcast. Um, but let's let's get the basic bare bones uh, explanation of what is a central bank digital currency directly from government Sachs. Because why not? The, surely they know what they're talking about. So from a recent uh, government Sachs report about the future of the dollar, they write, A central bank digital currency, CBDC, is a new form of money issued digitally by the central bank and intended to serve as legal tender. From an accounting perspective, it is a third form of liability for the central bank alongside cash and central bank reserves. As the name suggests, these two aspects, digital form and central bank issuance, are necessary components of all central bank digital currencies. Other design aspects of CBDCs may vary. One key distinction is between wholesale and retail CBDCs, the former are used only between central banks and financial institutions, while the latter is digital cash, M M0, for use by households and businesses. Central bank digital currencies differ from existing forms of payment in several ways. Currencies can generally be categorized by the type of issuer backing the currency, ranging from central bank claims to commercial and private claims, and lastly to those without a backstop. And currencies can also be distinguished between account-centric and token-based forms of money, and within tokens between digital and physical ones. Cash is the classic example of a token-based instrument. Its use requires only physical possession of the bills without any other information or identification. All right, we'll leave the quote there, and if you really want, you can pursue that, peruse that Goldman Sachs, government Sachs, report in for, uh, at, at your leisure in more detail, but... You're starting, I think, to get the sense of how these CBDCs can be implemented in a variety of different ways, and presumably there will be many different flavors implemented with slightly different characteristics by different central banks around the world. And as the BIS, the Bank for International Settlements, is at pains to stress in all of its carefully worded white papers on this subject, it's, of course, completely up to national discretion. This is a sovereign inst instrument that will be wielded by the, 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 the sovereign issuers of these currencies and stewarded over by the central bank. So the BIS has nothing. We're not going to say how to implement or not implement. We're just looking at different possibilities. So they're very careful with that. But yes, you're getting the sense that there can be widely and wildly different forms of these CBDCs that take place, take shape, depending on what attributes they have. For example, I mean, will it be a wholesale currency, as in only a, a bank money type of uh, currency that's only exchanged between banks and used as bank reserves? Or will it be a commercial um, uh, instrument in which Joe Q Public will use to transact and buy bubblegum at the convenience store or what have you? Will it be issued by public entity by the central bank itself directly, or will it be issued by commercial banks on behalf of the central bank? Will there be some sort of public-private partnership involved here? Uh, a term that, again, the banksters are using a lot in their discussions about this. Uh, will it be account-based, account-centric or token-based? Again, that has incredible implications for the anonymity or complete lack thereof of such a system, the control and surveillance that uh, it uh, brings with it uh, on the back of decisions like this. If everyone is, say, every ta registered taxpayer is given an account, whether you want it or not, here's your Federal Reserve account. It's tied to your social insurance number or however they do 
uh, decide to do that, you have an account now with the central bank and we will inject your stimulus money or eventually your UBI directly into your account. And there you go. And and eventually, I mean, you don't need a commercial bank account in order to use this in that scenario. So you would have your accounts. Presumably you would access it. Maybe there'd be a physical debit card at first, but more likely it'll be a smartphone app or something. And you'll be able to trade directly with people. Just like with cash, you'll be able to send it from your your wallet and your and your smartphone to the, your friend's wallet and you won't need a bank middleman. Yay! It's just that, oh yeah, I mean, the government, uh, well, the central bank, which of course is arm's length removed from the government, right, will be the silent witness to absolutely every transaction that takes place, whether you buy that stick of bubble gum at the convenience store, this particular convenience store in this particular neighborhood at 2.47 a.m., that, and that information will be recorded forever and always and stored in the, in the memory banks of the government for the rest of time. Uh, what could possibly go wrong with a system like that? And then of course, it also raises the specter that maybe the central bank will not be such a silent witness to such transactions and that they may have the ability to step in and stop any transaction that they deem naughty-naughty to to stop it from going forward. Or if they deem you to be a naughty-naughty person, you're a, a terrorist, you're a bioterrorist, you have committed wrong think, then they will be able to remove your account or stop you from transacting or prohibit certain transactions the amount of control that this potentially gives to the central bankers to operate, intervene directly, not just in a vague sense, but directly in any transaction that you make, is mind-boggling. And before any skeptical sorts who have wandered into this report start to protest, oh, that sounds like crazy conspiracy theorizing, well, let's take that crazy conspiracy theorizing directly from the managing director of the Bank for International Settlements himself. Now, in all our analysis on CBDC, in particular for the use of general, to the general use, uh, we tend to establish the equivalence with cash. Uh, and there is a huge difference there. Uh, for example, in cash, uh, we don't know, for example, who's using a $100 bill today, we don't know who is using a 1,000 peso bill today. Uh, a key difference in, with the CBDC is that central bank will have absolute control on the rules and regulations that will determine the use of that uh, expression of central bank liability. And also we will have the technology to enforce that. Those, are, those two issues are extremely important and that makes a huge difference with respect to what, she, to what cash is. Uh, 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 therefore, I think it, this, this lends itself to design carefully CBDC in such a way that they will not be a vehicle for fragmentation, for uh, financial instability, uh, and, and for spillovers. Therefore, I, I, I don't think that by, the, by themselves, C CBDC is a threat to the international uh, monetary system. Uh, for example, in the issue of currency substitution, if, a, if, if a, an advanced economy issues a CBDC and somebody in a third country wants to, to use it, it requires, it will require the consent of the central bank of the residence of that person. Uh, therefore, the, the, the degree of control will be fa far bigger. Now, this, I think it's, a, it's good news because I think that it really, it really provides the ground for us to think on how can we use CBDC to, to really obtain these higher objectives of facilitating payments internationally. How are you going to, to make them to reduce costs, to, to, to enhance inclusion? Uh, how are we going to, to make this route uh, run smoothly? That is something that so far we haven't achieved. Uh, there are many efficiency gains that can be captured and uh, I think our concentration should be there. Now, that was Augustin Karstens, the general manager of the Bank for International Settlements, in a live stream broadcast on cross-border payment, a vision for the future, that was being hosted by 
aforementioned New Bredon Woods moment IMF General Manager Kristalina Georgieva, and featuring Jerome Powell of the Federal Reserve, as well as banking representatives from Saudi Arabia, uh, Saudi Arabia and Malaysia. And uh, I think for my general audience, I, I would think that the only surprising part about that clip is the unbridled enthusiasm that Mr. Karstens shows for the complete control that the central banks will be afforded over uh, the currency supply in this new paradigm. And I quote, he says that unlike a $100 bill, the central bank will have absolute control on the rules and regulations that will determine the use of that expression of central bank liability, aka CBDC, and also we will have the technology to enforce that. Yes, they're openly talking about this and openly gleeful. And as I say, the only thing that should be surprising to my regular audience who already understands the banking paradigm that we live in and the quest for control of the technocrats, the only thing that will be surprising is that it is so open. And perhaps that is exactly why for uh, Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell had to step in later in the conversation to throw a little bit of cold water on Karsten's party. So we do think it's more important to get it right than to be the first. And getting it right means that we not only look at the potential benefits of a CBDC, but also the potential risks and and also recognize the important trade-offs that have to be thought through carefully. We have a responsibility both to the U.S. and to the world that any steps taken for U.S. digital currency be taken safely. We're absolutely committed to the soundness of the dollar and to safe and efficient U.S. dollar payment systems. So in addition to assessing the benefits, and there may well be benefits, there are also some quite difficult uh, policy and operational questions that need to be thoroughly evaluated. And just to mention a few, I I would mention um, the need to uh, protect a CBDC from cyber attacks, counterfeiting, and fraud, the question of how a CBDC would affect monetary policy and financial stability, um, and also how could a CBDC prevent illicit activity while also preserving user privacy and security. Assuming that those things can be resolved, yes, there are potential benefits, but it's no, that's that's going to take a lot of work and thought, we believe. So they're not simple questions and the answers are going to need to be comp- comprehensively understood. Um, uh, so I'll stop there. Thanks. Yeah. Now, let's be real. This doesn't mean that Jerome Powell is on our side or is really concerned about the possibilities of this type of power being abused by the central bank. Of course not. But he does have different interests that he has to placate in his role as chair of the Federal Reserve Board of Governors. Specifically, he may be thinking about the next time he has to go in front of the Senate Banking Committee and how he might have to explain any sort of unbridled enthusiasm for control over every single transaction in the economy, he has to at least put on the show of, oh, we're very seriously considering the right balance of uh, ways to implement this CBDC. And this was a dynamic that I specifically talked about recently in a conversation that I had with John Titus of Best Evidence about this very subject. So Carson gets up and starts talking about the virtues of central bank digital currencies, and he uses $100 bills or 1,000 peso notes as his example, and he says, let me explain some differences here. He says, problem with the $100 bill is we don't know who's using it. We don't know what they're spending it on. We, you know, we're just you – know, we're, in, we're in the dark. And then he says, but with central bank digital currencies, oh, we keep track of every penny. We know where every penny is, and and this is even better – It's somebody in a recipient country. So if somebody in America wants to spend their money in Canada, the Canadian bank can just decline the transaction, basically. They have to consent to the transaction for it to go through. And he says in this way, because central banks, you know, you have to require their consent, we can implement all sorts of policies that achieve higher objectives. And then he goes on. It's like, well, higher objectives like what? And one of one, one of them is efficiency, and that's that's always one they cite. Like, oh, we're doing this to for your convenience. But then he says, oh, we're also doing it for I think it was words like inclusion and diversity, and you know the whole green stuff. And that's like, oh my God, these guys are using their currency, they're using your money to implement God only knows 
whatever policies they have in mind or whatever the flavor of the month is. And he's all excited about this. And then there's a couple there's a couple of people speak in between. And then Powell says, hey, man, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, Powell, this guy cut his teeth. He's a lawyer. Powell cut his teeth at a law firm called Davis Polk and Wardell, one of the top 10 most profitable law firms on a per equity partner basis forever. It's a big white shoe conservative law firm. Powell's like, wait, 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 man. Well, you know, there may be some some really good things about central bank digital currencies, but there's a lot of legal issues here, like, you know, your security uh, you know, and hacking and, and privacy. And he sort of throws a bone like there's an issue of privacy, which, of course, there is. I don't really think that's what he's worried about. But Powell, my point is Powell recognizes that what Carson's is wading into is it's a very slippery slope from – you know, you're implementing your policy to you're writing outright law and you're superseding the laws of the U.S. and you're positioning us, the Federal Reserve. You know, we can't just do whatever we want, Carson's. OK, the Fed's got legal limits, maybe that other countries don't because the U.S. has the Constitution. And if it gets too far out of line, you're going to force a big legal issue. And the powers that be don't want that. And Powell understands that and Carson's does not. But it was a very interesting exchange between those two. Once again, John Titus of the Best Evidence channel. And if you are not following that channel, I suggest you do so, not only for the deep dives that he has back in his archives, uh, but also the ongoing Mafiocracy Now series that he's currently doing, exploring the monetary paradigm there in the United States in much greater detail. Uh, I highly recommend his work. But on that note, if you are only following me on YouTube, please stop following me on YouTube. But if you are only following me via my main YouTube channel, you may not know I have a secondary channel where I post up the full-length conversations with people like John Titus and others on an ongoing regular basis. So you are missing out on a bunch of very important material if you're only following me through my main YouTube channel. So another good reason to follow me through CorporateReport.com or my various other social media platforms. That being said, I would like to pick up on at least one point that John Titus uh, makes there. Uh, he makes a number of good observations, one of which is that one of the things that Karstens seems most excited about is the ability to enact various policy goals and agendas through the central banking system itself, now directly operable by these central bank digital currencies and the technocrats stewarding over them at the central bank. And one of the ones that Titus cites and that Karsten specifically points out is inclusion, which just sounds like another political buzzword, one of these mealy-mouthed pieces of blather that the politicians say, and we all clap, oh, yay, inclusion, that sounds good. We all know what inclusion means, right? It means everyone is included, everyone feels at home, everyone's welcome. But wait, what? what does inclusion mean actually in a specific banking context because it does actually have a specific meaning in this specific context one that is elaborated on at greater length in that IMF live stream later on as uh, Kristalina Georgieva uh, introduces the subject and then hands it over to the the governor of the Saudi Arabian Monetary Authority to talk a little bit more about what inclusion means in this case one of the aspects of our conversation today is about inclusion. Uh, what can be done so those who have limited access or at this point of time no access whatsoever to the financial um, uh, system we are describing can be included? How uh, improving cross-border payments can play a role uh, and uh, to what extent uh, we can venture in technological improvements that can accelerate this process of inclusion, more specifically, digital ID. Uh, if we are imagining a world in which uh, uh, digital is the uh, way in which financial transactions take place, how could poor people, especially poor people in poor countries, can be part of it? And Ahmed, I want to ask you this question. Uh, you have given a lot of thought to it, uh, especially in this year of leading the uh, G20. So how can we get there? Do we need uh, uh, to put more emphasis uh, on the issue of uh, reliable na national 
um, ID systems. Uh, how do we make it so that we walk on on, on two legs uh, the on the financial side, uh, but also on the uh, uh, ID uh, side? Well, indeed, uh, one of the very important goals of improving cross-border payments is to enhance uh, financial inclusion uh, in, in our region in, in particular for the reasons, uh, for a number of good reasons, in fact. But a key hurdle to greater inclusion would be the lack of uh, comprehensive and reliable, uh, what you call it, the identity system, uh, whose information can be trusted in other jurisdictions. Uh, I agree that offering such a system uh, has to be a cornerstone uh, of uh, global efforts to improve both national and uh, cross-border payments. The establishment of identity systems in the cross-border, which is uh, probably remote, uh, is clearly linked to streamlining the KYC and the customer due diligence uh, processes. Uh, in the domestic level in Saudi Arabia, we are working on a national EKY system which harnesses our national identity system uh, through the uh, KYC uh, ecosystem. Uh, the critical factor is how national systems, uh, i.e. national identity and KYC information, can be harnessed in the cross-border context and trusted by all uh, parties. Working with the Financial Stability Board and the Cross-Border uh, Payment Coordination Group of, of the Committee on Payments and uh, Market Infrastructures, where the, uh, the CPMI, we have identified uh, this objective as a specific building block uh, in the roadmap to improving cross-border uh, payments. Uh, this initiative will require extensive coordination among government agencies and financial institutions, as well as support from multilateral uh, organizations such as the IMF. The financial costs uh, of uh, developing national digital uh, ID and building shared KYC and digital ID infrastructure may also be significant. And this will prove a challenge for uh, emerging market economies to fund, particularly in the current environment. Are you paying attention? Because all of these pieces are starting to come together right now, and I know it's hidden behind all of this blather of banking terminology about cross-border payments and blah, 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 multilateral institutions. But no, listen to what is being said beyond the KYC, know your customer type of lingo and all of that. National identification systems are going to have to be part of constructing this know your customer ecosystem that will not only identify each and every person on this planet for the sake of the national governments, but then there will have to be cross-border regimes set up so that uh, different systems can interact with each other virtually instantaneously around the world. I guess there will have to be some sort of coordinating global institution that will be able to uh, harness all of this data and make sure it all talks together nicely and, you know, maybe something like the IMF. Whatever. We'll work out those details. But yes, we'll need some some sort of just global identification system rolled out. I mean, uh, the problem is that this might be really expensive to have this kind of, you know, like a like an Indian Adhar system of biometric IDing a billion people or something along those lines. I mean, those systems don't exactly just create themselves, and it might be difficult for developing countries to be able to electronically ID all their tax cattle. I mean, all of their population. So. Uh, these developing countries will need some monetary help with this. I mean, if only there were some generous philanthropists that out of the bottom of their own good hearts were willing to put in some money on such an obviously important issue. If only there were some brave and wonderful billionaire philanthropists who understood the importance of creating these ID systems. I don't need to tell you that the poor have been unbanked for as long as there have been banks. Why is this time different? Well, it's really the, the digital revolution. Uh, the poorest have you know, bought cows, stored gold, uh, uh, put currency under their mattress, uh, but uh, they are getting cell phones. And the cell phone capability of identifying who's using the cell phone, uh, let, letting you look at your spending patterns, uh, that's going to be common sense. Uh, people are going to have help and lots of innovative products competing on top of this digital currency platform. 
So if technology, mobile phones, for example, digital money, helps to increase access to financial services at the same time as it lowers the cost of delivery, why is philanthropy needed? Uh, philanthropy should just be here to bootstrap this. Uh, there are a lot of regulations in this area, and understanding how those regulations can make the cost of remittances, where you're sending money back to your uh, family in your country of origin, uh, how right now that has about a 5% overhead on it. Uh, we think we have a role to make sure that, particularly for the smaller transactions, the regulations don't impose uh, those very high costs. Once this gets going, then we'll step up to the applications and say, okay, what is, uh, how, do, how does a savings application help the mother make sure money's focused on the kids? How does it help them stay in school, you know, set money aside for the uniform or, or for uh, good future planning? Some of what you just described, the need to move money from place to place, the cost of doing so, the overhead, as you put it, makes me think, believe it or not, of Bitcoin, because some people have said, hey, Bitcoin is the answer to those problems. Are you a believer? Well, Bitcoin is exciting because it shows how cheap it can be. Uh, Bitcoin is, is better than currency in that uh, you don't have to ha be physically in the same place. And, of course, for large transactions, currency can, can get pretty inconvenient. The customers we're talking about aren't trying to be anonymous. You know, they're willing to be uh, known. So it, 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 the Bitcoin technology is key, and you could add to it or you could build a similar technology uh, where there's enough attribution that people feel comfortable. This has nothing to do with uh, terrorism or uh, any type of, of money laundering. Yes, of course. Who else did you expect? Yes, as anyone who has hopefully not just read or listened to, but actually digested the information in my Who is Bill Gates documentary will know by now. Yes, Bill Gates has his dirty mittens all over the concept of digital identification and specifically national digital ID schemes that can be tied into biometrics that can then be coupled uh, with vaccines and vaccine certificates and quantum dot tattoos and all of this. It all fits together, as you will know if you have watched Who is Bill Gates. And you'll know Gates' in intimate involvement, for example, in the Indian Adhar system, the largest biometric uh, national identification system yet constructed over a billion people, now with their eye scans and fingerprint scans registered and converted into a 12-digit unique ID number uh, that the Indian people uh, can use to access Indian government services, etc., and of course also puts them under the purview of the, uh, the Indian tax office in ways and gives the Indian government control that it could never have dreamt about uh, in previous generations over its billion-plus citizens. And, oh, by the way, that's why India has vaulted uh, forward to become one of the leaders in adoption of digital payment systems over the last few years. It's a, a very rich tapestry that is being woven around us, whether we know it or not, and whether or not our eyes glaze over when we hear bankers talking about new payment systems or something. Ah, it's, that's boring. Give me some more entertainment. Well, this is the real fabric of the reality that we are living in. This is the future of our world. Our children, our children's children will suffer under or be freed from the clutches of these banksters and what they are planning with their central bank digital currencies. And that is up to us. I will have more to say about that coming up. But first, we have only started to consider the the retail side of potential CBDCs in terms of the average money that JoQ Public uses to buy their sticks of gum or what have you. That's the retail money. What about the wholesale money, the money that the banks use between and amongst themselves? Central banks settling internationally, banks uh, uh, trading and settling with each other to meet capital requirements and what have you. Uh, that is a totally different type of money that you and I don't have access to and we don't use in our day-to-day -day business, basis, uh, business, but does exist and is the basis for the world monetary system and the banking system generally. It's exceptionally important, as you might gather. And that's why, that's an exceptionally important part of Georgieva invoking Bretton Woods at this time. It's not just that we're living through some crisis that the IMF can save us from, although I'm sure she intends that. But it's also, Bretton Woods, of course, was where the U.S. as a world reserve currency was formalized and cemented into place, specifically with 
various countries agreeing to peg their do- their currencies to the U.S. dollar, which would be convertible to gold at $35 an ounce. That was the system that was set up at uh, Bretton Woods. It didn't function very well or for very long. It wasn't until 1961 that all the countries that were supposed to peg to the dollar did so at the uh, the the rates that they they pledged to do so. Uh, so it took. 15 plus years before it ever really even started functioning at all. And then it didn't really function very well for very long because the U.S., of course, was suddenly get, uh, ex- greatly expanding its military industrial complex and getting involved in Vietnam, etc., which greatly increased uh, military expenditures. And uh, they did not uh, take the appropriate levels of gold, purchase the appropriate levels of gold to back that up. So, of course, they couldn't make good on their promises to pay at $35 an ounce. And there were problems with payments. It resulted uh, by the summer of 1971 with the French president ordering a destroyer to uh, go to New Jersey to collect gold uh, in return for dollar holdings. And lo and behold, two months later, Nixon closed the gold window. Yes, you know, that whole promise, that whole premise that the entire world monetary system has been based on since uh, Bretton Woods, that the dollar was as good as gold and convertible to gold. Well, yeah, no, we're not going to do that, of course. So, uh, and then... And then it plays out from there, and then you get to Kissinger and his machinations to get the petrodollar going. And uh, again, there's a lot of history here, and I will put some links in the show notes for people who do not know that, because I have covered this in great detail in some of my other works before. But this is an important aspect of what we're dealing with when we start looking at the specter of retail CBDCs, as in, uh, uh, sorry, wholesale CBDCs, as in banking money. And what does this mean for a potential world reserve currency? Will the U.S. dollar maintain its position as these currencies become digitalized and these different CBDCs will be playing with each other cross-border instantaneously, virtually, and flowing back and forth, not just not just between central banks, but between individuals on a much, much more fluid basis. What does that mean? And who's going to settle that? Well, this is where the big plans start coming out for, well, who's going to control all this system? I guess we'll need some sort of supranational body to do that. And we'll need a new bread and woods to figure out how all this is going to work. And Lo and behold, now they're talking about a new Bread and Woods moment. So this is another incredibly important aspect of what's happening right now that I also touched on in my conversation with John Titus. So what happens in 71? Nixon closes the gold window and breaks the link between the dollar and gold. And gold was supposed to be the ultimate reserve, right? It would, you could settle all transactions. It's real money and all that. Nixon breaks that. We shift to the petrodollar on 73. Really, the world reserve currency, as a matter of fact, is you know other countries trust the dollar, and so they'll convert some of their paychecks, say, in Argentina into the dollar, and then they'll, they'll have dollar bills. You know, Powell even said in that conference, I found it interesting that there's two trillion dollars in Federal Reserve notes out there, and he thinks that a trillion of them are abroad. I think it's north of that, but whatever. It's a big chunk. And that's 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 not legislated. That's just a matter of fact. Anyway, to central bank digital currencies, take two countries. Um, let's take U.S. and Japan. So, you know, I spend, say, $1,000 of central bank digital currency in Japan, and you turn around, James, and buy $500 worth of stuff in the U.S. from me. And now, because those are liabilities – and, you know, Japan's going to be like, hey, you know, we just took on $1,000 of your liabilities and you only took on 500 of our liabilities. You owe us, you know, you, you we need to settle. You basically, you owe us $500. Um, how are we going to settle that? And I think, you know, the one possible, you know, what, there's a lot of potential answers to that. One would be the, any, anything that everybody agrees on to settle transactions is just what it's going to be. Um, so it could be gold could be silver, could be whatever, could be, you know, seashells, but they have to agree on it. But it, I think the more likely thing is that somebody like the BIS is going to propose or the IMF or whoever, something like special drawing rights where you have a, you'll have a basket of currencies that'll include, you know, all the big players and it'll be weighted or whatever. And the transactions will be settled that way, but they've got to be settled though, because, you know, of the, of the, of the settlement process and the fact that the, the Powell and Karstens themselves, you know, they're right. It's just this is monetary, you know, policy 101. Money from central banks, really money in our system, it's it's liabilities. 
And because they're liabilities, there's assets that got to go with them and things have got to balance out. I walked that through that in my video pretty well, I thought. And the same principle would apply to central banks with liabilities issuing cross borders. How are those transactions going to be settled? And is the BIS planning on issuing some sort of you know, reserve that functions as an asset? And if it does, then that, that, that will become the world reserve currency, whatever asset that is, because it is the ultimate reserve. In the U.S. dollar having you know, broken the link to gold 50 years ago, a long time ago. Yes, when they talk about a new Bretton Woods moment, they are not joking. There really is an entire new monetary paradigm up for grabs and on the table. And do you think they're just going to let it lie there? Of course not. They are actively taking steps to ensure that the new world monetary order comes about in their image. And I think we and the general public, much to our detriment, are not concentrating on this, are not even aware of it because, oh, that's that banking stuff. Oh, it's just so confusing and boring. Whereas in reality, this is the determinant factor factor in the future of human relations. Human transactions will be governed for decades, if not generations to come by agreements that are being made behind the scenes right now that it would really behoove us to know a little little bit about at any rate so that we can take appropriate steps and measures to insulate ourselves and hopefully transition ourselves off of this system of economic and monetary enslavement that's been woven around us more on which in a moment but first let me just say as much as we have covered today we have only scraped the surface of this issue. For example, we could go into the works of, uh, say, Ben Steele, who wrote The Battle of Bread and Woods, John Maynard Keynes, Harry Dexter White, and the making of, quote, a new world order. Say it with me. Yes, a new world order. And uh, th this is a voluminous, well-documented, informative book uh, on the history of the Bretton Woods Agreement and the players at that table, specifically in this case, Harry Dexter White for the Americans and John Maynard Keynes for the British Empire. Uh, the Bretton Woods Agreement is formally an agreement that was signed by all of the allied uh, members uh, of the, the World War II effort. Um, but in reality, it's not like all of these allied countries, the delegates from the 44 countries, descended on Bretton Woods hoping to, you know, negotiate and get the get their part out of it. Well, not really. They were going for their marching orders because by that point it was apparent America was going to be the leader of the New World Order. And so everyone was going to figure out, well, okay, so what's that going to look like? Uh, if there was an actual participant in those negotiations that helped to shape those negotiations, it would have been the British Empire and represented most notably in that case by John Maynard Keynes, who most people will probably know as in, in passing Keynesianism as sort of the carte blanche for the technocrats um, who lust after any sort of ideological uh, justification for their technocratic stewardship over central planning of the economy. Well, Keynes handed that to them on the silver plat platter, most notably and most famously with his general theory. But uh, more, more to the point, and interestingly enough, not noted at all by someone like Ben Steele, who, oh, by the way, is a senior fellow for the Council on Foreign Relations, uh, not noted at all that John Maynard Keynes also uh, was the president of the British Eugenics Society from 1937 to 1944, an avowed, committed eugenicist. And what, what did that... What, what part did that have to play in the type of international monetary system that he was seeking to construct and who might be come out on top in that system? Or, or Harry Dexter White, who still, to his credit, does at least note, was actually, yes, a Soviet informant, declassified. This is mainstream history at this point. Yes, Harry Dexter White was just one of the many, many Soviet informants infesting the Roosevelt administration. What, what, what were the real ramifications of that? What did that mean in terms of what his position there was, helping to carve out a new world monetary order there in Bretton Woods. That, that isn't really reflected on too deeply by Ben Steele. So, of course, take it with a gigantic grain of salt, this senior fellow of the Council on Foreign Relations and his history of Bretton Woods. But having said that, do not throw the baby out with the bathwater. There is a lot of very interesting and documented evidence and, uh, and documents and and observations in that book that are worth knowing if you are interested in more detail about Bretton Woods and what really happened there 76 years ago that has 
shaped so much of our lives and the the, the monetary fabric of the world that we live in. Uh, extremely important stuff, including, just as an aside, just a little tidbit. Uh, there's a lot of important information in there, but just one little tidbit that's almost a, a throwaway in one line of that book is that, oh, by the way, did you know there's a clause in the Bretton Woods Agreement that the Bank for International Settlements will close up shop, cease operations, go out of existence at the earliest possible opportunity. <laughs> and apparently when asked when that earliest opportunity might come, Keynes apparently remarked something along the lines of, well, not very soon. And yes, he was right about that. 76 years later, the Bank for International Settlements is certainly not closing shop anytime soon, but actually that was a part of Bretton agreement that no one took seriously. Um, but having said that, one of the things that, uh, that Steele and others remark about the Bretton Woods negotiations is that although it didn't actually get tabled at Bretton Woods, it was a settled issue really before the negotiations even got underway. But Keynes, for, from his perspective on the British Empire side of things, didn't just want to hand the keys to the, the kingdom, the monetary order over to the Americans wholesale. Of course not. They didn't want the US dollar to become the center of the world reserve currency necessarily. Keynes was arguing before Bretton Woods for some sort of international monetary unit that would be stewarded over by some sort of international body. We'll call it the Bancor. It'll be a global uh, money that will, uh, I mean, the central banks will be using them, not average Joe, Joe Q public. But at any rate, there will be an international monetary instrument. That, as I say, didn't get very far. It didn't even get tabled at Bretton Woods, really. But uh, it's extremely interesting to note that decades, over half a century later, uh, in the depths of the financial crisis in 2009, you have the People's Bank, the then governor of the People's Bank of China, Dr. Zhou Xiaochuan, writing an essay that was uh, delivered to the Bank for International Settlements called Reform the International Monetary System, where he says, you know, at Bretton Woods, you had Keynes arguing for a bank or to be the center of the world monetary system. Maybe that was the, the good idea. And we shouldn't have taken Harry Dexter White's idea of the U.S. dollar being good as gold. Trust us. You've seen how that worked out. That didn't work out very well. Maybe we do need some sort of international monetary unit. And what can we use? Well, the IMF has their special drawing rights. And that was the beginning of the lobbying effort of the People's Bank of China and the Chinese commies generally to become... Uh, participants in the special drawing rights basket, which, of course, did eventuate several years later. And that's why people still, to this day, talk about the SDR as being a potential for that replacement of the U.S. dollar as world reserve currency. It could happen. And uh, we might be being transitioned into that via this CBDC paradigm that's going to require some sort of new monetary paradigm. So incredibly important things are on the table right now. And the time frame for this is not decades away. It's not, they're not talking in terms of centuries, some sort of slow gate glacial pace. No, things are happening right now. People will have seen in the last few years, Mark Carney and others talking about some sort of Libra-like quote-unquote cryptocurrency, by which they mean central bank digital currency, will be needed in the future and that sort of thing. But those pronouncements are getting more and more strenuous. And for example, uh, someone who is keeping good track of this is Stephen Guinness at stephenguinness2.wordpress.com. I'll throw the link in in the show notes. But yes, he's been following this issue for some time. So for example, back in July, he had an article up on Bank of England Governor Signals Central Bank Digital Currency is coming. And then he followed that up uh, in uh, August with a article, BOE, Bank of England, on course to begin rollout of new payment system, talking about the UK's real-time gross settlement payment system that is being worked on and is apparently ready for rollout in 2022. So things are happening and they are progressing quickly. We're talking within years, we will start to see these digital central bank digital currencies being rolled out, or at least be the PR campaign uh, rolling out. And uh, we're already starting to see that. And it's only a question of how it's introduced to the public so that they will not revolt against it. And that's ultimately where I want to end things at today, not just examining the beast system, but how we can avoid this beast system uh, at this point, the bankers are clearly signaling their intentions. They're clearly rolling forward with these plans. I don't think that there's anything that any one of us at our level of the power pyramid at the very bottom are going to do to derail this agenda from moving forward. They are working on rolling out and 
making these central bank digital currencies happen and it's going to be tied into national IDs and they're going to try to vaccinate people and get their certificates and and, and UBIs. Don't worry, you guys, we'll, we'll provide for you as we lock you down as long as you comply. It's all, be, it's all happening right now. And I don't think we're going to derail it through some sort of assault from within the system. No, as I have been saying for years now and is only being underlined doubly and triply so by recent events. Our power is in not participating in this system, in recognizing that there are other things that we can use to exchange and trade with each other other than these dollars or pesos or yen or pounds that we are being given by these central banks. Of course, when it is convenient, they will start extracting cash or anything that even reeks of anonymity in any sense, and they will start replacing it with these digital equivalents. And of course, it will not happen all at once or overnight. They are not going to suddenly say no more cash and now only this digital and everyone must have it. It will take time and they will they'll introduce them in parallel and then gradually cash will diminish until it, it won't even be worth having cash around anymore. Right, guys? Because you're all using the digital anyway. That's that's the, the system that the way that they introduce these systems to the public. Well, we need to be engaged in the exact opposite course by starting introducing and building up the alternative payment systems and structures which we can use to interact with each other directly and not through the central banks, not with without central banks watching over and directing and, and approving or disapproving every single transaction that takes place. How can we possibly do that? Well, of course, there are the time-honored and very old forms of exchange, not just barter, although that is certainly something that can happen, but also, of course, precious metals can be used to, to exchange goods and services, yes, but there are lots of other ideas too. Alternative currencies, complementary currencies, let's systems, and time hours systems, and those types of uh, trading systems that have been established in a number of communities. They may already even exist in your community. You may not even know about it because it's not widely known and people haven't been thinking along these lines, but they better start doing so. Of course, cryptocurrencies are another form of uh, transaction a lot of people are afraid of because they've been duped by the Bitcoin PSYOP into thinking it's all one big hodgepodge. Fair enough. There are many, many, many alternatives. I've talked about many of them over the years. There are many, many, many more to explore. And as I have been stressing with my recent work about solutions and agorism, unless and until we start building out the trading space to trade with each other outside of the purview of the central banks and the fiat money that they are foisting on us and that will increasingly be virtual and digital in nature, unless and until we expand that space, we are going to be crushed under this system. So it is not an easy thing, but we have to start transitioning and building out the Agora. And there are many, 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 many ways to do that and many things to be said along those lines. As always, I'll direct you to the solutions tag on corporatereport.com where I have talked about this at length over and over for years and years now. And I suggest you start catching up on that, but we'll have to continue that exploring these ideas, obviously in greater detail as we go forward. As always, there will be a ton of show notes for today. So please make use of this resource, corbettreport.com slash breadandwoods2, where you can get all of the different things that I've cited today. And keep in mind, this is only the beginning of this exploration as we move forward from here. No doubt you will be hearing more about CBDCs, the new bread and woods, the future of the monetary paradigm. All of these things will be tomorrow's news, but you are informed about it today. So let's take advantage of that and start building out the alternatives. I'm going to leave it there for today. This has been a very exhaustive and uh, exhausting exploration, but I hope you are still with me for it. And I hope you realize this is not glazed, gla eyes glazing over boring banking stuff. This is absolutely fundamental to the future of humanity. And I hope you're here with me for this exploration as we move forward from here. I am James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Looking forward to talking to you again in the near future. The Corbett Report is brought to you by The Corbett Report subscriber. A weekly newsletter featuring James Corbett's international forecaster editorial, recommended reading and viewing, discounts on Corbett Report DVDs, and once a month, a subscriber-only video. 
sign up today to start receiving your copy at corbettreport.com support.